You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, thank you for being here. Um, and I should first of all say thank you in particular for coming on this really cold day. Um, Anna asked me as we were walking up Bascom Hill, will anybody be there? Um, and I said, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, but the people who uh, will be there will be the people who really, really want to hear your talk. So it's great to see so many people here um, for Anna's talk. Um, so it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Professor Anna Muller. Uh, she is an assistant professor and the Frank and Mary uh, Pajeski Endow Professor in Polish, Polish-American and East European Studies um, in the Department of Social Sciences at the University of Michigan at Dearborn. She holds a master's degree from the University of Gdansk in Poland and her PhD is from Indiana University. So I want to say a few things, first of all, about Anna's publications. Uh, and then I want to also say a few words about the many things uh, that Anna has done outside of the traditional classroom, traditional university uh, framework that I think is, is just as important um, in terms of her form the formation um, of her scholarly outlook. Um, so last year, um, Anna published her first monograph entitled If the Wolves Could Speak, Inside a Woman's Prison in Communist Poland came out with Oxford University Press. It's obviously from this uh, book that she's drawing uh, from her, uh, for her talk uh, for us today. She also has two additional books under contract. The first is entitled My Body and My Cell, which is a collection of oral history interviews with female political prisoners from Eastern Europe and will be published in Polish. Um, and the second is a biography of Tonya Lechman, which will be published with the Ohio University Press. As I say, however, I do want to mention some of the wide-ranging and no less vital work that Anna has done outside of the traditional academic establishment. From 2010 to 2012, she worked as a curator for the Museum of the Second World War in Gdansk, Poland, where she co-curated exhibits um, on the Holocaust, concentration camps, forced labor, and eugenics. And she was kind enough this morning to come into my um, History 201 class and talk to the students about that experience, which was, was wonderful. Um, in 2012, she coordinated an exhibit on contemporary masculinities and femininities in Eastern Europe uh, entitled She, He, Me. Um, and the exhibit was on display at the Hahn Museum of Art in Gainesville, Florida, and then later at the uh, Olliman Cafe in Hamtramck, Michigan. In 2015, thanks to grants from the Polish Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the research and sponsor programs at the University of Michigan Dearborn, she collaborated with photographer Thomas Zarek and the Emigration Museum in Gdynia, Poland, on an oral history project in Hamtramck, Michigan, titled The People of Hamtramck, which included a series of interviews with Hamtramck Polonia, so the Polish uh, community there. And the project resulted in two exhibitions, one in Hamtramck and one in Gdynia, Poland. Um, I was speaking with Anna earlier about the final thing I want to tell you about. Um, she's involved in the Inside Out Prison Exchange Program, in which a college class is taught in a correctional facility with the participation of both prisoners, who are referred to as inside students, and outside students from the university. Um, and she spoke with me uh, this afternoon about the uh, kind of uh, growth that both 
both types of student, the inside and the outside, um, have from this experience. And it was wonderful to think about the applicability um, and the interest that the um, that both sets of students have in the text that she teaches. I think that uh, this is just one more example of the way in which Anna is invested um, in her uh, the characters that she looks at in her book, but also in uh, contemporary uh, people who are um, incarcerated today and the ways in which they can learn from students and of course the students can learn from them as well. So with all of that said, um, I'm really delighted that she's here. Um, please help me in welcoming Anna Muller, whose talk today echoes that of her book, If the Walls Could Speak, Inside a Women's Prison in Communist Poland. Um, thank you so much um, for inviting me. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. Um, I'm really amazed that so many of you came, came here today in this weather, even though I'm from Poland, Michigan, this is nothing new, and yet, you know, um, cold day. Um, and thank you, Katrin, for this beautiful introduction. Now I get really nervous, um, so please excuse me if I, you know, look really, really nervous in five minutes. Um, so what I would like to do, uh, I guess I will just present this book, and I will treat it as a book talk, that I, or during which I will tell you um, a little bit about the premise of this book, the research that I did, the sources that I used, uh, and sort of some of the questions that I managed to answer um, during the process and some of the questions that I uh, left unanswered. So this book is essentially um, a sort of ethnography, that's how I um, came to think about this, of a life in a prison cell. It really um, happens in a prison cell and it takes the reader through some of the worst and most beautiful moments of a life in a, um, this very oppressive setting, uh, a prison cell. It starts by um, contextualizing the circumstances in which uh, the new communist regime that came to Poland after the Second World War ended uh, began the process of imprisoning men and women people who are um, involved in either war anti-Nazi resistance or post-war anti-communist resistance in Poland. Um, so it takes us, the reader, through you know, this, the setting of the, pro the, the penitentiary system against so-called anti-state prisoners. There are no political prisoners from the perspective of the state. The people are actually called um, the anti-state prisoners. Um, so it shows at the very beginning the emergence of the penitentiary system, something that was emerging in this atmosphere of post-war chaos and shortages of almost everything, from money for the prison workers, employees, through things like a gate to a prison, keys to a gate to a prison, um, and almost everything else. Um, the penitentiary system that emerged in 1945, around 1944-1945, was based on two units. The first one was Ministry of Public Security, and the second one was the unit uh, called the Prison and Camps Department. So on the one hand, the prisoners were actually um, were facing the state vigilance and very arbitrary violence that came from uh, MBP, the Ministry of Public Security, and on the other hand, there were attempts at rehabilitation. That's what happens in prison too. That's how they communicate through the pipes. So, <laughs> so um, 
you know, on the other hand, there is the prison and camp department, and they actually try to initiate and try to introduce uh, a number of rehabilitation practices that were nevertheless carried out by, by rather uneducated staff and were largely unsuccessful. Um, the majority of the book is based on uh, oral interviews, um, and I feel that the voices, the women's voices, is sort of the, the key uh, element, the key aspect of this book. It um, starts by showing how uh, women try to negotiate their place, their position under interrogation, and it sort of then continues by showing how they try to recreate normalcy, uh, how they try to transform their space, this very oppressive site, into a place where they could regroup and um, gather strength. Um, and I try to show how they actually use their bodies to liberate themselves from the limitations that came with uh, their physicality, and how they later on, once they regrouped and gained some kind of um, st stability, tried to recreate social life, some kind of relationships in a prison cell. Towards the end of this book, I look at daily life in prison, and it's usually the time in prison that happened after the interrogation. So this is the time when they were at least, most of the women were at least safe in terms, they, they knew that they, um, they have a very prescribed number of years to spend in prison, but at least they were not worrying about their life anymore. Um, so I look at um, you know, how they dealt with boredom and the sense of incredible idleness that came with the years of being in prison in a small prison cell, and I think um, this actually, this, this, this problem of boredom and idleness is a phenomenon uh, that stood at the sharp contra contrast to the previous war activism. Um, so in the end, and I think this is something that um, I learned to think of as something very universal, judging from you know, what I see when I visit American prisons, when I engage with um, prisoners, students in my classes, that the life in prison is actually a mixture of boredom and desperation uh, with sort of those occasionally intensely intoxicating moments of clarity um, that actually show that even in prison cells, this emptiness is actually never there. So the small space, going back to the book, the small space, the most extreme of um, setting, the place that is essentially an antithesis of freedom, I believe that it tells us something about um, the Polish-Stalinist experience as well, in addition to sort of carrying the larger message of, you know, of universal value of how to reconstruct your life in very oppressive space. And that's something that I will um, comment on in a little while. So who are the women prisoners that my book talks about? So some of them, many of them were actually arrested for their war activism, for their collaboration, for their for their collaboration with the anti-Nazi resistance, some of them were arrested for their involvement in military and civic post-war organizations that were actually turning to be anti-communist in the post-1945 Polish realities, and many others were imprisoned for allegedly very dubious activities on the basis of their relationships with uh, men that were part of their lives husbands, brothers, and often their sons. In some cases, there were actually evidence of their anti-communist activism, but in many cases, um, the accusations were cumbersome and absurd. Um, 
Okay, I'll give you a couple of examples. Let me start with, oops, it didn't work because it's my computer, not this computer. Okay, here, here it is. Let me just take a sip. So let me start with Elżbieta Zawadzka, one of the women I had a chance to interview. He was my elderly interviewee, and uh, during each interview with me, as well during the public interviews, she liked to emphasize that Polish wasn't her first language. She was born under the Prussian partition, and her first language was German. She started learning Polish when she was 10 years old. She's actually the second, and so far <coughs> the only women to hold the rank of a brigadier general in the Polish, Polish, uh, Polish army. During the interwar time period, she worked for the military training for women organization that she was involved in since the 1930s and largely helped to build. During the war she was, this is during the interwar period, during the war she served as a courier for the home army. She was carrying letters and other documents from Nazi-occupied Polish, Poland to the Polish government and exile and back. So she either traveled to London, and very often she traveled to Berlin, where she picked money for the Polish um, um, anti for the Polish anti-Nazi organizations in Poland. So the way it um, it actually works is that the Home Army primarily existed from funds from the Polish government in exile. From London, the money was being sent to Swedish banks, and from Swedish banks, the money was being sent to Berlin. And Elżbieta Zawadzka was the one who usually traveled to Berlin with a double uh, bottom suitcase, and she picked up the money, delivered it to Poland. And here's a map. It's actually, again, that is again, this is this computer, sorry. I, this is my, sort of like I know what's coming. That's why this is the computer I keep using. So this is not the map that shows her travels. This is the map that shows Jankowski's machines, but she traveled in a very similar route. So she either traveled from general government in Warsaw to Berlin, or she traveled through Berlin to Paris and from Spain to London. So she actually repeated all the rules that Karski did as well. In 1951, because after the war she was ready to quit her anti-communist activism or, and just devote her uh, energies to the new communist state, she was ready to do that, and she emphasized that in her interviews. But uh, she also said that it's very difficult to destroy a home that was built for years, right? So she, had, she wanted to have time to sort of finish her activism and finish, make sure that all her relationships were safe, the people that she, they're working with her were safe. She was arrested during one of the last actions in 1951 and sentenced to 10 years for espionage. Another example is Wisława Pajdak-Szmiechowska, who was the daughter of Antoni Pajdak, an interwar member of the Polish Socialist Party, uh, a person who organized a uh, resistance movement outside of Auschwitz, who was one of the people that worked for the resistance movement outside of Auschwitz. He stationed in Warsaw, she stationed near Auschwitz, and she was the one delivering to her father uh, letters reports from Auschwitz, and then delivering back to Auschwitz, for example, medicine. Her father was one of the 16 that were members of the Polish government that were kidnapped, abducted um, in 1945, and sent to Soviet Union, where they participated in the stage trial. She found out uh, soon after her father was um, 
abducted, she tried to find out what happened with him. And this was when she was arrested for the first time in 1947 for trying to find out where her father is. Her, father, her mother was arrested with her. After short interrogations, they were both released. Her mother, soon after release, commits suicide. So on her way out of prison, she found out that you know her father is, nobody knows where, her mother killed herself. So she continued sort of trying to figure out what happened to her father. In 1950, she was arrested again, and this is the photo for um, her second arrest. In 1951, she received a sentence of six years. Kristina Woda Shakimak and her sister. The, one of the reasons why I'm showing these photos is because these are the only photos where imprisoned women were actually photographed with the items um, from the packages they received. The main reason why they were arrested was because <coughs> they were accused of some um, espionage work because they were receiving packages from London. Uh, with some, here is the text, in the packages there were letters that were con con uh, containing some coded information. It is not quite clear, however, to anybody at this point, whether they understood what they were supposed to do with those letters, whether they were able to read the coded information. And it's interesting, nevertheless, that the photos that were taken of them is not of the letters, but of the items that were in the packages. And finally, Halina Lebedovich, and this is my, this is an example of a Ukrainian woman imprisoned uh, in Poland. She was arrested for her uh, activity in the Ukraine insurgent money, um, army, and her activities against the Operation Vistula which was the first settlement of the Ukrainian population that was living in Poland. And this is a very Ukrainian story. She's imprisoned for UPA, she spends a couple of years in prison, and after he, her release, she's very vulnerable. She doesn't have a family, her family is mostly, most, uh, the, the families of the Ukrainian women are most often in the Soviet Union. So they feel very isolated, and there's usually secret police at their backs trying to uh, convince them to cooperate in order to, for example, get a passport to um, reunite with their families. So, um, so the women that were in prison were usually in prison for the anti-communism. Uh, there are also some Ukrainians. And among the, the anti-communists, we have the Home Army members, or the members of the groups that were sort of different alternations of the Home Army after the Home Army ceased to exist in 1945. There were also women from the uh, National Armed Forces, um, National Military Alliance. But in addition to women that were actually anti-communists, there were a lot of communists imprisoned with them as well. Um, trial proceedings and sentences were usually arbitrary, to say the least. And the women received sentences of three, sometimes five years, sometimes between five and 15 years. Many of these women were actually sentenced to uh, life, received life sentences. They were later commuted to something between 10 and 15 years. Um, 
let me tell you a little bit about the social standing of this of this um, project of these women. And this is one of the weaknesses of this project. I know this is probably not a good thing for me to admit to the witness weaknesses, but I will do it upfront. Um, anyway, I would rather do it that way. Um, so existing sources are rather skewed when it comes to telling these stories. The majority of the women who either wrote their di- left some kind of diaries, wrote memoirs, or even met with me, represent higher middle social strata. Um, they were usually city dwellers, intelligentsia, very often pre-war landowners. As a result, available recollections and story do not necessarily pre- represent a um, cross-section of the society. Women from lower social classes are certainly underrepresented in my book. Um, However, there is an interesting caveat, maybe not that interesting, but a caveat um, nevertheless. While men in their recollections very often talk or even complain about low social and intellectual level of their um, cellmates, the woman, on the other hand, always underline in the stories that I received or the stories that I read this exceptional composition of the woman in the cell. So, of course, this is one of the uh, stra- strategies of how to narrate the, your past, right? Um, because women, while minimizing, and they really do minimize any potential sources of conflict in prison cells, while they minimize potential conflicts or cell diversity, they really concentrate on how the women sort of work together in order to deal with the imprisonment. So it cer- certainly reflects you know, the way these women were socialized, but because uh, most likely only 10%, we don't really know the exact numbers of how many women prisoners there were, but most likely it's only 10% of all the prisoners that were women, that could also um, reflect the fact that there was less of a diversity in female cells. Okay, what's my argument? <coughs> the most difficult part, right? Everybody always asks about the argument. What are you trying to prove? And it's very difficult because the more, I, the more time I spend in prisons, the more I think this is a very universal story. There is almost nothing unique about this story. But there is. So first of all, this, is, this was my dissertation. This is my first book project. This was my dissertation and was sort of very much created in this atmosphere when we, you know, for example, discussed Foucault a lot. This was definitely a big part of uh, my graduate um, education. So what I learned from this project uh, was that prison not only crushed, but also created identities, right? In that respect, prisons are those very creative spaces that they help um, develop new identities. The women that I looked at definitely used their senses to orient themselves in the prison space. They used their bodies to gain control over themselves as means of exercising pressure on the people around them, their cellmates, as well as the prison guards and prison authorities. So, um, you know, exactly um, following Foucault, these were the docile bodies, um, in, and in their case, we see that the gaze was subjugating. <coughs> Uh, but in their case, and in case of many prisoners as well, um, the same gaze that is subjugating, when it is actually reversed, can be uh, liberating. And through this process of rever- reversing the gaze, the women were uh, able to uh, gain some agency. Finally, they prove that power is very diverse. The power is outside them, but the power is also in them. 
Another sort of larger argument that is, again, very deeply linked to my training in graduate school comes with this discussion of nature versus culture. Gender is performed, right? And during the research and the writing process and the multiple conversations that I had around this project, I saw examples of this performance a number of times. But there are some elements in the story that cannot be reduced to um, performance. Exhaustions, hunger, hunger strike, fastings, breastfeeding mothers in prison cells, labor in prison cells, all of this uh, was sort of showing me that on the one hand, human biology cannot be reduced. Um, and on the other hand, human body has this incredible capacity for performing, and exactly for that, for um, sort of uh, recreating himself or herself. So I feel like there's this constant tension between the body as a performative side on the one hand, and the side as physical weakness. And this constant tension was a very important part of the prison experience of this woman. In terms of what kind of intervention I was trying to make to Polish historiography, I think that even though um, I wasn't, I was consciously trying not to go into this direction, everybody, the existing historiography, the questions that I was asking, the topic I was dealing with was pushing me into the question of Polish martyrology. So this was this big elephant in the room that I actually wasn't able to avoid, even though I was trying very hard. Um, Polish historiography, I don't know how familiar you are with it, but Polish historiography, especially the historiog historiography on this topic that emerged in Poland within the last, last 10 years, usually sees you know, the communist prisons for anti-communist heroes as the place where you know, the suffering of Polish patriots actually takes place. Um, what's interesting is that the woman, I had a chance, again, not this computer. This one. The woman I had a chance um, to interview um, underlined um, that their story is not the one of heroism and martyrdom, but rather it's this narrative of individual efforts and creativity. And I have a couple of quotes for, for you. The first one comes from Ruta Czaplinska, one of the prisoners, who says, who said, in prison we try to create a deeper meaning or to survive it in a way that gave us a chance to leave prison and enter freedom as normal or even enriched people. This was, was not wasted time. It was time that made us richer. We lost a lot, but nobody will take away from us those contacts, experiences, friends. The second line comes from Irena Bukowska, another prisoner, but this was actually something that I heard every single time I interviewed any of these women. This was not completely wasted time. Or finally, nobody should think of us as martyrs. What's interesting, they usually, and the majority of them did this, they used the word postava to describe uh, themselves in prisons. Um, and the term postava in Polish refers to standing. The other word that they used was trzymać fason, that actually talks about style. Um, behave as if somebody was watching you all the time. Convey, because you have to behave as if somebody was watching you because you are conveying a message with your behavior. 
Um, and what's interesting um, is that the discussion of Postava really uh, came very strongly in our discussions um, when we talk about this movie. I don't know how many of you are familiar with <coughs> The Interrogation. It's a movie from the 1980s that tells a story of a woman who is actually has some kind of uh, communist sympathies, um, and she's imprisoned. She doesn't know why. She is imprisoned in the late 1940s, so she's a Stalinist prisoner in Stalinist Poland. She is very angry. She uh, enters into some kind of physical intimacy with another woman in her cell. Eventually, she is having a relationship with her guard, and she ends up having a child with him. Actually, not a guard, interrogation officer. So the women that I talked to, they were very angry. They treated, and I didn't even have to ask about this movie. They would bring it up every single time because they treated this movie as something that was offensive to them, right? They didn't scream. They didn't yell. They didn't engage in physical relationships with other women. They did not have any kind of contact with the interrogation officers. And certainly, they didn't have children. That's the story that they, want to, um, they wanted me to uh, hear. Um, so in, while discussing interrogation, they would actually comment again on postava, because postava for them means control over their emotions, their body, their physical space, as a way to externalize strength and integrity. So for me, and this is sort of a, a part of the hmm, argument that I'm trying to develop uh, a little further, um, this concept of postava actually helped them to go beyond the concept of martyr. Uh, this was their own way of representing their prison experiences and also their experiences in the post-prison life. I, at some point, I even started to think that this is their way of transgression. Um, postava is something very uh, dynamic that they obviously acquire in the process of socialization in Poland. Um, but this is a phenomenon that helps them cross many boundaries and adapt to circumstances. And paradoxically, it helps them define their space outside of very narrowly defined um, terms of patriotism, heroism, or materiology. Gives them the sense of individual enrichment while ultimately giving them a voice as Polish patriots. And finally, um, and this is something that I, um, it's very difficult for me to generalize because the majority of the book, the book is about women's um, uh, narratives of the imprisonment. I would like to say something about um, Stalinism, the early communism in Poland, and how, what this book may add to our understanding of this time period. Um, so obviously it shows violence, it shows fears, it shows, it shows fear, it shows oppression. When I was writing this book, there were, again, at least two conversations that I felt were happening around me that I somehow was becoming part of. The first one is the conversation that Polish historians were having, and this goes back to the sort of concept of Polish martyrology, right? If you're imprisoned, that equals your suffering, that equals that you are fighting for Polish independence, right, away uh, sort of outside of the Soviet Union. That means that you're 
definitely anti-communist, anti-Soviet, um, anti-post-1945 Poland. The other conversation that I was sort of passively part of, but not very passively, it was, it's the book by Patrick Kenny that maybe some of you had a chance to read. Patrick Kenny was m my advisor. And at the time when I was writing this, he was writing a book about global imprisonment. And this was coincidence that we were both working on prisons. Um, anyway, so what he's arguing is that imprisonment creates this shared experience that turns political imprisonment into a sort of a tool of activism. It's a form of political statement. Every imprisoned person becomes a political prisoner, and through his or her imprisonment, they make a political statement. The women that I work with, the stories that I heard, um, the stories that I was trying to reproduce, these women were neither um, activists, nor they collaborated with the regime. They really situated themselves somewhere in the middle. They were neither aggressive opponents of the regime or people who were ready to cooperate. They really tried to use their moment in prison, uh, this existing situation, to enrich themselves, right? Hence, they, for example, uh, were trying to, to watch all the movies that were being shown in prison and participate in all the discussions that were happening in prison. They were trying to learn a profession in order to be able to join regular life, re-entry the post-prison Poland when the time comes. They essentially accepted their reality and they were getting themselves ready to join the post-prison uh, world. And I'll show you some of the um, documents later that sort of speaks to that, but they used the imprisonment to learn, similarly to the way Patrick Kennedy describes it, but not to fight, but to serve Poland. So not to fight for its independence, but actually join the mainstream Polish society. Um, okay, let me tell you a little bit about the sources that I used. Sort of, how much more time do I have? I'm already 10 more minutes, 15 more minutes. I'm speaking for half an hour, 15 more minutes? Okay. Uh, interrogation protocols. These were in addition to oral interviews that I already mentioned. Interrogation protocols were probably the documents that I used more, most often. Um, and it's true that many people who don't use the interrogation protocols say that many of, this, uh, many of these documents are actually invented. It's, it's very possible that some of the sections were invented. Um, but nevertheless, they seem to record those long exchanges. Sometimes the Polish interrogation protocols sometimes go into hundreds of pages. Um, so they seem to sort of reflect, they look like this very polished conversation happening in the interrogation cell. There's no violence, there is no record of any uh, bad words being used, of any sort of ver verbal offenses being used, or physical violence. But nevertheless, they sort of reflect the strange dynamic that is happening in the interrogation room. Some people say, historians uh, even argue, that there were financial incentives to record everything that was happening in the room. The people that were actually taking minutes from those meetings were being paid for a number of pages they delivered, right? Mm -hmm. And knowing what I know about the people that were taking those notes, it would be impossible to imagine that they actually imagined those stories. I think it's more likely that they listened very carefully and were actually writing down what was happening in, in those rooms. 
The Polish interrogation officers used Soviet biographical. I should stop walking, probably. <laughs> it's hard to stress. I just walk around. <laughs> um, so they used Soviet biographical method, meaning that they were compelling prisoners to tell their stories over and over again, right? So they were asking exactly the same questions Where are you from? How many children do you have? How many siblings do you have? Who, what was your who was your father? Uh, where did you spend the war? Etc. Etc. Starting another day of interrogations with exactly the same questions, waiting for some kind of small inconsistency that will show you know discrepancies in the story and will um, allow them to sort of ask additional uh, questions. And women, in most cases, at least in the cases that I saw, actually engaged in this dialogue. They lied. They confessed. They confess sections, they lied about certain sections, they maneuver, they try, they recreate, were creating stories, and they were trying to prove that those stories are actually worth um, believing. So this is how they look like, mostly handwritten, hundreds and hundreds of pages. And here's with one of the story, Felicia Wolf. Her interrogation records go into like something like 800 pages. Um, so she was a soldier during the First World War. Uh, in 1939, she was called to military duty. She first served in the Union of Armed Struggle that later on turned into the Home Army. Um, she actually worked as a courier, so she did similar things to what Zawadka was doing, but she was going east versus west. Supposedly, the routes east were more challenging. In 1941, she was arrested by NKVD, sent to Kazakhstan. She managed to get out, um, and then after the war ended, she actually continued what she was doing during the war, but she was traveling west. And that's her. So in 1949, in February, a woman uh, who introduced herself as Anna Neumann was caught when she's trying to uh, cross illegally the German, Czechoslovak-German border. At this point, we know, because it's all in the same folder, at least this point, we know that the police is looking for a, a woman they called Auntie. So they're hoping that Anna Neumann, Anna Neumann, here's her name, uh, and Auntie are the same person, right? But Anna Neumann introduces herself as uh, somebody who is actually older, um, not educated, very lonely, lost. She lost her family in the war. Right now, she's trying to get <coughs> to Germany where her sister is. She lost contact with her sister during the war. Right now, she's just trying to reunite with her, right? So uh, interrogation officers sent her back to Warsaw. They interrogated for her for a couple of weeks. They decided she's not auntie, and they let her go. In 1951, she's arrested again. And that's the photo from 1951. And she, again, is introducing herself as Anna Neumann, right? But at this point, police seem to know more about her. So they are asking different questions. Um, Anytime they, you know, ask her, but really, who are you? You're not Anna Neumann. She insisted that she's Anna Neumann. But her story is becoming more and more complex because, you know, at this point, their interrogation is going into weeks and months. So um, she's making mistakes. For example, at the very beginning, she said that she had one son and he died. And after a couple of weeks later, uh, she started saying that she actually had two sons and they both died, right? So this is already a reason for them to believe that there is something that doesn't make sense in the story. They even traveled to Surplash in Eastern Poland when Anna, where Anna Neumann was born in order to find out who she really is. And they found out that she's actually not Anna Neumann, 
but Felicia Wolf. At some point, they even brought into her cell a woman, Maria Opala, who was in the same uh, um, organizational um, cell with her, and she testifies, saying, this is not an anonymous, but Felicia Wolf, whom we know as auntie, right? And this, was, this is something that was recorded in the, in the inter inter interrogation protocols, because they asked her, so what do you think? Why was she traveling to Poland so often? And the answer was not to battle for Swedes, but to spy, right? Which, is, which I found somehow entertaining, I don't know why. Um, what's interesting about her case is that um, in December 1952, um, the secret police finally decided that they have enough, that they know enough, even though she keeps refusing to admit that she's actually uh, Felicia Wolf, they decided to try her. In 1952, in February, there is her trial. In March, she was sentenced to death. And they, when she's in her cell, they actually bring her um, the document to sign that she signed to death. And uh, the death uh, sentence is Felicia Wolf, and she refused to sign it, right? Because claiming that she's unknown and not Felicia Wolf, so she's not going to sign it. She was not executed because this was so late in the game. This is 1952. By 1952, uh, really, um, the, the, nobody's executed anymore. Mm, so I think if she was actually sentenced <coughs> in 1949, she would have probably been um, executed. So what's interesting in this story is that she really, sort of there were three personalities that she was trying to play. She's, you know, Felicia Wolf, this very well-educated, independent uh, person who is very active, very engaged, uh, very skillful. Then she is Anna Neumann, um, um, domestic worker, not very educated, and really scared of everything. And finally, Auntie, um, you know, the courier who kept crossing the borders back and forth throughout the entire war and then after the war. Okay, some other sources. Let me check time. Okay, six more minutes. Other sources. When I was actually going through, you know, home archives, I found a lot of personal artifacts, like little um, artifacts that women were making in prison cells, uh, sometimes with the use of threads that they were pulling out of their clothes. Uh, poems. This one is actually very touching because it's the testimony of a marriage that actually took place in a prison cell, and this text was sent in a letter um, to a family in 1954 from one of the prisons. And another two poems, the women were composing poems in prison cells. They were not allowed to write them down, but they were memorizing them. And this one I think is very interesting. It's from Irena Tomalak, who was actually also very high in the military structures in, in the Polish army. And this is her, sort of her story from the war, where she says, I can walk, run, chase, knock on the door, bang on windows, I can be silent, whisper, talk, shoot, carry, eat paper. Once on the pavement, once through a channel, my little legs run. She's talking about what she was doing during the war, working as a courier in Warsaw, courier in Warsaw uh, for the home army. So she's active, she's doing something. And then a couple of months later, she wrote this one. I lost many dear ones and my past, almost entirely, my children survived. I found them and wanted to give back father, create home and new family, and I wasted their faith in my own, worse than from the German hand, and I'm alive instead of dying. I think that's what they were going through many times, and there are a lot of poems that show, sort of show this, this contrast between, you know, there's very, very, very active warriors, and this time that seemed 
uh, very idle. Um, and throughout this, this entire time, they are actually thinking of how to become active again, right? And Poland, even though it's a communist Poland, seems to be a place where they can feel useful um, again. Um, there were also documents, reports, that these women were writing for the prison authorities. Um, this one comes from Barbara Sadowska, who was um, working for the Polish espionage during the war, and she was also working with this woman, Emilia Malesa, who was one of the first women who decided to cooperate with the uh, communist prison authorities in order to make sure that the people that worked with her during the war were actually saved. Um, she, um, this woman, she left prison earlier. She was ostracized by, um, you know, the people that were part of her military unit, by the members of the Home Army, to the point that she killed herself. She committed suicide in front of a prison. Barbara Sadowska spent some time with Malesa in a similar cell, and she sort of got convinced that this is a way to go, that the struggle, the prison struggle, doesn't make any sense. And she wrote a report to the prison authorities in which she was trying to prove her point, saying, if you want these women to start working with you, if you really believe that we can rebuild Poland, there are things that you have to do. You have to change your strategy. And this is just a short excerpt from the document. The midwife of the new regime doesn't have to be an obstructive hack, Baba Pawoshnicza, who in a very primitive way welcomes a newborn to the world. If we want a baby to live, be healthy and strong. Basically saying, whatever methods you're using, they're not working. Right? You, have to, uh, you have to use different methods if you really believe that we can help you rebuild the Poland. So there was this dialogue happening, um, at least to an extent, uh, in the, the heads of at least some of these women. Okay, and the last thing that I wanted to show you, and I think if I have five minutes, I can still do it. Um, very often I complain about this project to my friends. They heard about this a lot because this was, it seemed very static. It's like, how many, how, lo how much longer can I be in a prison cell, right, where nothing really happens? And at some point a friend told me that it's great because it's like Greek strategy, right? Um, and three unities. Um, unity of action, or minimal one, unity of space, unity of time. And that pushed me to sort of thinking, can I recreate what's happening in one of the cells to see the dynamics between the women? This was possible only in one case. And what's interesting is the documents that helped me do it were the cell spy reports, right? That's sort of the last kind of documents that I look at, the spy cell reports. They're usually the most heartbreaking because they show you how divided the women were, that there was a lot of backstabbing going on. Um, so I read a lot of those, and I was actually surprised about how little backstabbing was going on in the reports. So t let me tell you the last story. There's only one cell, um, um, life of which I was able to reconstruct based on the cell spy reports. It was a cell number 26 in Makotov prison, in Warsaw interrogation prison, from September 1949 to early 1950, because the women were moved from a cell to cell nonstop. So, you know, they usually didn't spend more than three, four months in one cell. So the cell was very small. It was, this is an example of a cell spy report. This is the cell I'm talking about. I mean, this is not the exact cell, but this is the closest we can get to sort of trying to imagine all the kind of space we're talking about. The cell was two by one, two by two. There were actually only one 
uh, metal bed that was attached to the wall, but there were five women in the cell, so they were not able to sleep on, the, on this bed, but had to use the pallets that they spread on the floor in order to sleep there. And there were five women in the cell. Two home army women. Um, the first one was actually a member of the underground police force. The second one uh, worked for the second department of the home army and unit responsible for espionage and counter espionage. She was a very mem important member of the Polish home army. Two communists, Tonia Lechman, a Jewish communist. Her parents left Poland for Israel before the war. Um, in Palestine, did I say Israel? I'm sorry, Palestine. Uh, in Palestine, she met her future husband, uh, Sioma Lechman, who, who actually fought in the Spanish Civil War and died in Auschwitz in 1945. In 1947, she returns to Poland with Noel Field, an American. She's trying to build hospitals for the returnees, for people that are returning to Poland after the war. The other communist is Ewa Piwinska, who actually spent a couple of years in Majdanek, another concentration camp. And um, already in 1946, she worked for the communist government. She, for example, in 1949, when she's being imprisoned, she's working for the diplomatic outpost in Rome, Polish uh, diplomatic outpost in Rome. So she's brought from Rome straight to a prison cell with a three-week-old baby. So she's very upset because she doesn't know where her baby is. Uh, Tonya Lechman has two children. They were both born actually in Paris before the war. Halina Zakszewska, this is her second imprisonment. She lost her pregnancy during the first imprisonment. At this point, she has a small baby that is left at home. She's worried sick. Sabina Stalinska also has a son. And there is Vera Schott, who is Ukrainian. And she probably is the only one without children in this cell. I'm not going to tell you who was the prison, who was the cell spy because I don't know for sure. I have my guesses, but I don't want to say it here. And I just wanted to show you quotes from the cell spy reports, because one of these five women is writing reports about exactly what's happening in the cell every day, hour after hour, like detailed reports of what they are doing, what they are talking about. Here are some examples. According to Zakrzewska, all of these women, Vivinska lost the most. She lost her daughter because she's communist, right? And she lost something that was a condition of her existence, a belief in an idea. About Vivinska, she wrote, she is enthusiastic, sincerely, and with all her heart devoted to communism, she lives and breathes this idea. She knows nothing about people's perfume. Impulsive, she makes a good impression on her cellmates. Her empathy toward others and their problems wins over her adversaries. Lechman was sincere in relationships, this direct, modest, straightforward, full of life, idealist, sincere and devoted communist, a good mother with no ambitions to gain fame or privileges. Um, this is what's in the report, like pages, pages of these reports, sales by reports, with really not a bad word about them, just giving us sort of an insight into what's happening in the cell. So I think what's interesting in the story um, is sort of in addition to the fact that this was really the only cell, a life of which I was able to reconstruct, is how open and very dynamic those relationships were. Um, and what's interesting for me from the perspective of doing this project, because when I started asking, recording interviews, talking to this woman, when I, every time I asked them, was there any communist woman with you? 
they would say, obviously not. This was a prison for anti-communist women. There were not communists among us, right? And yet, there were some, and there was no conflict between them, almost none visible in a prison cell. I, I found in documents some examples of you know, open conflicts, but the majority of the self-spy reports are exactly like that. They give you a sense of what's happening in the prison cell, but in this kind of matter. Um, okay, I'll finish. What I have for you at the end, and I don't know if we have that, in the 1980s, um, uh, a film uh, maker, Marta Łoziński, that's actually Marta Łoziński, tried to make a movie about these women. Um, the movie was destroyed. She managed to record this woman from this one particular cell, actually, because he was also fascinated by the, by the idea that you have communists and anti-communists in a conversa conversation about ideology, right? Which is especially striking in the light of you know, the recent events in Poland and how divided the country is. Um, so he, in the 80s, he tried to make the movie. The movie was destroyed, and he was never able to finish. Recently, he returned to this idea, and what he did, he made a short documentary about um, how much the Polish society essentially knows about imprisonment and what we think about imprisonment, and on the level of the family, how divisive and how difficult to comprehend this experience of imprisonment actually was. And this idea of, you know, we were uh, prisons in communist Stalin's prisons, and yet we don't necessarily feel like this was entirely wasted time. We actually learned something. Um, this is a very, uh, very intimate, very um, beautifully made movie, but I don't think we have, I have like a short clip of seven minutes. We're not going to, and I think this sort of takes us into a larger question that um, for me is emerging partially out of this project is that, you know, Poland never actually went through a conversation of what happened, what was the meaning, was there anything meaningful in this experience? Instead, right now, you know, the Polish historical memory sort of um, full of, you know, the memory of the cursed soldiers, the people, the anti-communist um, heroes, and they dominate the public discourse right now. Thank you. And I'm sorry for going on. <laughs>